Hi guys, Zach here. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash cinematary. This gives you access to over 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, and Kindle, as well as an MP3 player. Right now, I'm reading Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick, Arthur C. Clarke, and the making of a masterpiece by Michael Benson. But Audible users can also access other film books, such as Hank and Jim, The 50-Year Friendship of Henry Fonda and James Stewart by Scott Iman, or Five Came Back by Mark Harris. Again, the link to get your 30-day free trial is www.audibletrial.com slash cinematary. One more time, www.audibletrial.com slash cinematary. Now, on to the show. Welcome to episode 192 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I am here with... Lydia Creech. Nathan Smith. And in today's episode, we will be talking about movies we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we will be concluding our Tennessee Auteur series with 1997's Gummo. Uh, it's going to be, you know, get your get your spaghetti, guys. It's going to be a fun one for this one. Get your spaghetti and your milk. All that good and stuff. And your crunch bars. And your crunch bars. Mm. Uh, and sit and down for this cats. one. <laughs> um, and wall bacon. That's true. Uh, well, let's go ahead and talk about movies we saw this week. And let's, I guess, uh, real briefly talk about the one of the big new releases that kind of went wide uh, this past week. And that is Isle of Dogs. It's the latest film from Wes Anderson. Uh, it comes from a script by Anderson, uh, Roman Coppola, Jason Schwartzman, and Kanuchi and No More. No Mura. And uh, this one is set in Japan and it follows a young boy's odyssey in search of his lost dog because in this dystopian version of Japan, uh, the mayor of this fictional city has cast all of the dogs to a island known as Trash Island because they are they have been uh, infected with this uh, what like kind of some some sort of disease that like uh, yeah, dog flu that's that's you know infecting the city, and so they've been cast over to this island. So the the boy is looking for his lost dog. Uh, the cast includes a number of of Wes Anderson staples. I mean, I don't know. I'm not gonna go through them because there's it's people. If you've seen any of his movies, you kind of know what you're getting. Uh, Nathan, you caught this a little earlier than most people uh, in New York. Um, I don't know. Do you have any? Do you have any thoughts about this movie? I I, I feel like you were probably. Uh, a little lower on it than than most. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really particularly dislike it. Even I was uh, just found it a little dull. Uh, I think. I mean, I think the animation, as as comes as no surprise, probably is really superb and very detailed. <clears throat> but it honestly was to a point where it was so detailed and so precise that I found it a little overwhelming and a little claustrophobic. There was just so much going on on screen uh, that I didn't really know where to look sometimes. And maybe that was just because I was sitting too, too close to the front or something. But um, because of that, I just sort of started to feel a little numb after a while. Just so I, it's, and it's for a movie that is, I mean, it's not a, children's movie but i think it could play to 
to, to children and being this kind of sweet movie that it is, I felt just felt like it was a little long. Um, I mean, I think the stuff with the dogs I like, and I think the, uh, uh, relationship between Atari and the, whatever the Brian Cranston voice dog is named, um, yeah, is, uh, you know, it's very sweet and, and very cute. Um, but, you know, everything, as I'm sure, you know, people have read or heard or probably have their own thoughts on uh, this. I just at a certain point, I was just kind of like, wait, why is this even really in Japan? Like all of the cultural stuff just sort of felt like an appendage to the movie and I just started to have a problem with the the lack of subtitles slash the use of the the translator um just because I really wanted to know what these characters were actually saying and so you know it it just started to get a little frustrating to me after a while um so I don't know <clears throat> honestly it's like it, it was maybe like 30 minutes into the movie where I was just sort of waiting for it to end which sounds really negative but it, it's wow, it just got a little so tedious for me so mm -hmm. uh lydia what about you um honestly i think i feel a lot of the same way you do nathan and it like i've also read all the really excellent articles out there by like Asian American film critics talking about Wes Anderson's cultural appropriation or cultural tourism or whatever. And it's hard to get too offended because I just got, like you said, kind of tired. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is also a shame because I really like stop motion and I really like Fantastic Mr. Fox. And I just wish this had more energy and also didn't come with like a lot of baggage that's just I don't know there's something about like white boys who really love Japan like that's a very annoying <laughs> like it's a very annoying personality and and even given the like political statement that he's trying to make or that is in there of the like you know uh kicking people out of the country and all that stuff. It's like, I was kind of like, does this really need to be set here? Like, I don't you know. know, I saw it with a group of people and one lady was very insistent that because the Japanese are so clean and can't stand like messiness and dirtiness. And I was like, no, please stop what you, what you're doing. Please stop. This isn't Japan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is Wes Anderson, Japan. And like, please stop assuming things about Japanese people don't like dogs. I don't know what's happening here. <laughs> um, Nathan's point about it being political was kind of what interested me about it. I don't think that Wes Anderson's ever really been a political director. He's been pretty apolitical. Uh, I think that there's kind of tinges of politics in Grand Budapest Hotel, but it's also so um, saturated with the whatever whimsy, you know, kind of fancifulness of of that world that it doesn't ever feel like it's that overt um i mean it's pretty clear uh donald trump an announced his his 
candidacy for president in 2015 this idea was started for for this movie was begun in 2016 uh, i think it's pretty obvious the the uh the political message that he's trying to make but and while i like this movie i, I i'll i'll add to that the the stop motion is is really fantastic um you know i guess self-plug if you want to hear more about that kind of process i talked to a animation professor from usc on the newsreel podcast this past week and it was really interesting just kind of that process of of making these types of of movies but um back to the the kind of political thing uh this to me kind of again falls under a, a category that seems to be prevalent in contemporary I mean maybe it's something that's been around forever and, and please correct me if I'm wrong but it just seems very prevalent uh, in, in contemporary uh, movies and television of this kind of pop culture activism uh, and it's a, it's an activism that you know, it, I, it kind of reminds me a lot of a movie from last year, The Post uh, by Steven Spielberg, which it's a fine movie and you can kind of understand the message it's trying to give, but it doesn't it, it doesn't do enough with the message to make it feel like something authentic or genuine. And I feel like that's something that in this age we, we kind of look for we don't want somebody to, to just uh to just recognize the issue and put it on screen and be like all right because i recognized and put it on screen that's doing something i think that there needs to be like kind of a tangible uh forward progress quality to it and the isle of dogs just kind of feels like wes anderson saw this this thing happening kind of you filtered it through his brain and the outcome was just like okay like yeah we agree with you Wes but like all right um and that and it's, and it's not that's not something that it's just him doing I think like I said I think this is something that's that's popped up a lot in 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 movies today um but yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, did you guys did you guys pick up on any of that of the kind of political subtexts? I, I definitely did, but it, it just yeah, you know, sort of like you said, it just sort of felt a little. Which I mean, I don't really know. You know, with a movie like this, I'm not going in expecting it to have some kind of fierce balls to the wall statement. But it does just like you're saying. You know, it does sort of have this sort of toothless quality that's like a lot of movies and I'm sure beyond movies to have where it's, you know, just a sort of, I guess, allegorical recognition of whatever's happening in our world isn't really enough. Like there needs to be a little more oomph to it and a little more. It just belief it, it feels yeah it feels it, like the equivalent of the people who uh retweet donald trump tweets from like 2014 that relate to something happening today and go oh gotcha like, like, like yeah there's yeah yeah like like i don't understand what that act's supposed to do and it's not like we disagree with you like we're like yeah yeah steve we we agree with you but like what is that actively doing like what is that doing to progress anything and i don't know maybe maybe this 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 whole conversation diverts away from the from the movie but 
it was just something that that kind of I left thinking about was um, was just how filmmakers are trying to speak to current politics, and I think that we're going to be starting to see that now more than from stuff like from last year. And I'm just I, I don't know. I guess I'm ment- I'm starting to mentally prepare myself for that in contem- in, in in our movies. But uh, Isle of Dogs, it's in theaters now if you would like to check it out. Um, another movie, <laughs> yeah, uh, another movie I wanted to talk about real quickly is a documentary that you can watch now on HBO. Uh, is uh, titled and it is about Andre the Giant, uh, who was. Uh, uh, the professional wrestler Andre Rusimov. Uh, he most people knew him, you know, in the '80s and '90s. Uh, he was one of the the big faces of of professional wrestling up until uh, you know, kind of the and they talk about this in the documentary the the con, the, the conglomeration that is now the WWE was kind of forming. Um, and uh, it's directed by Jason Hare, who also did uh, the Fab Five and a number of other 30 for 30 documentaries for ESPN. And it kind of has a very similar structure to that. Uh, I'm, I'll, I'll just be upfront. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a big professional wrestling fan. Like that's not something that necessarily interests me, but the thing that really moved me about this documentary in kind of looking at, at, Andre the Giant as this personality was the idea of celebrity and and how one is viewed through that lens because uh, you know honestly there was some really like genuine candid moments from Hulk Hogan who's talking about his relationship to Andre and how you know uh, most professional wrestlers including himself kind of have a, a sort of persona that you know even if they're outside of the whenever they're outside of the ring they can kind of hide it you know he's like there's there's uh i forgot who it was in the documentary he says but they're like you know most wrestlers have masks or uh you know something that that creates their personality whenever they enter the ring and andre did not have that he like he was andre the giant 24 7 365 and there was just this deep sadness to that uh the film starts in uh, talking a little bit about his life in france uh and then talks about his move to uh to north america where he started to get uh, into into professional wrestling and, and became just this towering force because and in it was kind of this this viral thing before viral was a was a term that people were using um and honestly it's you know it's while most people know about the the structure of a of a professional wrestling match um but whenever Hulk Hogan was talking about WrestleMania 3 which is him against Andre the Giant and just the lead up to that, I kind of was a little upset with Vince McMahon because he was talking about what they were doing to build up Andre before that fight. And it kind of seemed like he was pushing Andre into this, 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 into the ring to do this, even though Andre was, was, you know, struggling health wise and clearly was kind of on the last, you know, edges of his, of his life. Um, and then oh, Vince McMahon, Vince McMahon is straight up evil yeah well, like well it's real it's, life it's, evil it's, person and, and he and he kind of just and, and he was trying to like justify like oh well andre was you know this is what andre wanted to do and this is you know andre he lived for this and i was kind of like yeah vince but 
he also ha- was having a lot of issues yeah. at this point in time, and you kind of forced him into this for the, for the, for the you know entertainment value of it, and and it's really it was really moving to like, honestly to hear Hulk Hogan talking about this because he was like, you know, for the most part we had mapped out what the match was going to be like. He's like, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, but he's like, we didn't really know how we're going to end it, and every time I would you know try to figure out how to end it i'd go andre how do you want to end it and he'd be like it will happen you know how it happens and he's like i don't know what that means it's kind of it's kind of freaking me out and so whenever the actual ending of wrestlemania 3 happens and hulk hogan defeats andre the giant and kind of opens up this new uh age of of wrestling um there's something really poignant about the moment of of hulk in the ring you know getting cheered on and andre being like taken away and and kind of the what happens post that match um i don't know i i I would recommend this documentary it's only like an hour and a half it's a pretty swift moving documentary i would recommend it to people um just as this portrait of um you know, I think that the the term legend or icon is thrown out so often, but I feel like Andre the Giant was truly like a legendary, iconic figure. Like he, like just his presence was so iconic. Um, and I think that this quite, quite literally uh, uh, larger than exactly. Life. And, and I and, and I think that it really does get to the to uh, the heart of that. And I think it really. I, I kind of wish it, it, it stayed a little bit more in they talk about how he had this ranch in North Carolina that he went to and how he loved going there because it was this small community and people did people didn't treat him differently because he was so large he could kind of go to the store and do stuff in a normal sense when if he was in New York or LA or anywhere else you know he was walking around and he was immediately recognized and how that really made him sad and insecure and it was the this, this this melancholy that the documentary really captured about his life really uh, really moved me. So I, I, I would recommend this documentary, wrestling fan or not. I think um, it's a very good portrait of, of this larger-than-life figure. It's on HBO for those who are curious. Um, but Nathan, you had a, uh, a couple movies you wanted to talk about. Yeah, uh, first I want to talk about a movie which uh, has been talked about on the podcast before by our own Dylan Moore and I know it's one of his favorite movies but I just saw it for the first time uh, and it is The Clock by uh, Vin- Vincente 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 Minnelli uh, the legendary director of films like uh, An American in Paris Meet Me in St. Louis which we've talked about before The Bandwagon some came running one of the masters of american musicals and melodramas also the one-time husband of judy garland and father to liza minnelli and this is um the reason why i watch this actually is because filmstruck just added like 20 or 25 movies of of Minnelli's. I think almost everything he did, or maybe everything he did before, maybe like 1962 or 63 or something like that. So that's a whole lot of movie, and there's a whole lot of great movies in there that I I, I really haven't seen very many of them, but I know you know, he's he's regarded as, as one of the best, and a lot of 
people whose whose taste I really trust have gone to bat for him and speak highly of his work. So I decided to to dip my toes into it a little bit. Um, this film is about a soldier who is who is on leave. He's about to get deployed. It's towards the end of World War II. Um, he's played by Robert Walker, and he's this kind of naive, um, innocent country boy who's in New York City on his leave. He doesn't know anyone. He doesn't know what to do or where to go or, you know, he's just overwhelmed by the size of the city, the size of the buildings, the the, the amount of people. Um, and he, through sort of a, a series of events, um, ends up bumping into a young girl uh, played by Judy Garland. And um, he, like... Trips her, I think, accidentally, or no, he he's sitting down in Penn Station, and she trips on him and and breaks her heel, and he just feels so bad about it that he like goes to get her shoe fixed, and then they sort of go off on this adventure together, and he, um, you know, he's really looking for a friend, so she sort of takes a shine to him and decides to show him around the city. So the first part of the movie is this very sort of meet cute, you know, very light comic, you know, classic Hollywood movie. Um, they're, they're going around New York city. They're going to central park. I think they go to the Met, um, at one point, you know, just really seeing the sights. Um, but as the day, as their day together goes on, it, it becomes clear that they are starting to develop feelings for one another. And um, as the, the afternoon comes to an end, they go their separate ways, but they decide to meet up that dinner for evening, uh, that evening for dinner. Gosh, I can't speak sometimes. Um, so they, they, you know, they go on a formal date and on their way home, they really just fall head over heels for one another um, and have this crazy night together as anything and everything kind of goes awry. Um, and they like end up in this, you know, like they get a hitch a ride with this milkman and then the milkman gets punched in the face by a drunk. So they have to deliver all these milk bottles and they're up the whole night. And then the next day they decide to get married, but it's, you know, it's late in the day and, um, he's leaving the next day. So they have to rush all around the city to try to get all this paperwork taken care of so they can get married because they just love each other so much. And so it becomes this really sort of crazy, hectic, um, crisscross, crisscrossing the city sort of adventure movie almost, which really, you know, the first part of the movie, like I said, is, is very lighthearted, but as you get deeper and deeper into the movie, it becomes very anxious. It becomes very dark. You have all these crazy superimpositions of the characters' faces with clocks over them, and it just becomes in intensely dramatic and shifts into a whole nother register from what you've just been watching. Um, and... You know, Minnelli is is really known, I think, for his use of color. This movie is from a little bit earlier in his career and is in black and white. But there is just still such a like rich visual texture to it. Um, um, you know, like I said, that like the superimpositions are really. I mean, that's something that I'm a little bit of a sucker for. I like a I love a good superimposition, but it it's just. Um, it it honestly reminded me a little bit of the sort of like just in sort of how it has this. Um, 
quality to it where you're, you know, you are with the characters going on this tourist trip around the city and seeing the sights and traveling with them. It reminded me a little bit of sort of the city films from from the silent era, like Man with a Movie Camera or uh, Berlin Symphony of a City or Manhattan. Um, those movies where there's really no plot or structure. You're just sort of going around the city. You're seeing people's routines. You're seeing how they spend their free time. You're seeing them at work. Which So it's not quite exactly that, but there is sort of that quality to it where it's, you know, it is this compelling romance and you really start to feel for these characters and fall in love with them. But you're also falling in love with the city at the same time. Um, so I, I just found it um, really compelling and evidence of, of real talent from Manali as a filmmaker that he can manage all of these different tones and registers that you can that he could pull off a movie that is so light and, and good hearted, but a movie that is also anxious and, and a little bit suspenseful too, uh, because you really don't know if, if it's going to work out for them. Um, and there's a great, I I've recently since, since moving to New York, have really started to love paying attention to movies that have significantly, uh, long scenes in the New York City subway systems, just because that's where I spend a lot of my time now. Like uh, Sam Fuller's Pickup on South Street or Carlito's Way, uh, movies that just really use subway stations and subways well. And this movie has just this great panicked um, scene, scene like on the subway where they get split up and they don't even know each other's last names, but they're so in love with each other and they're just trying to get reunited. And they're, you know, you see them like one steps onto the subway car while the other one steps off and you're just like your heart is racing but it's also I think a really compelling use of use of geography and of space at the same time so I can see why it's one of Dylan's favorite movies and I, I think it's gonna uh, slowly become one of mine and I'm, I'm very excited to check out more from Benelli. Um like I said if you have Filmstruck you have access to like a uh, good chunk of his filmography now. I mean, most of the movies he did, actually. Um, so thank, thank God for, for Filmstruck, you know, uh, doing, really doing the work. Um, the second movie I wanted to talk about is unfortunately a little less available. Um, I Actually, I uh, watched it for a class, uh, a Chinese cinema class that I'm taking right now, and I believe it's available on DVD. It's called Suzhou River. Um, from 2000, directed by Lo Ye. Uh, I think I said that right. I probably didn't, but it's a it's set in in Shanghai, sort of contemporaneously to to when it came out. Um, it is basically a riff on uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Um, and I had known going in that the movie is entirely shot on mini DV. And I'm always very interested in, in digital cinema and in movies that really look are, are shot digitally and, and really look digitally. And particularly films from this period when there were a lot of filmmakers who were starting to branch out, whether out of necessity, out of economic limitations or just out of a desire to experiment with new technology. And so they were using mini DV videotape Um and, and really getting this interesting, like digitally grainy look um, that, I, that I think there's a lot that you can do with. So this movie, I had known that, but what I didn't know is that about half of it is actually shot in like first person perspective. Um, you are basically for most of the movie, your 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 gaze and your perspective is aligned with that of this guy. You never know his name, but he's 
called the videographer and he you know makes his living shooting weddings and and um, performances and things like that so the movie starts with him uh, in Shanghai going down Suzhou River which he tells us is this river that has collected centuries of rubbish that's just filled with trash there's all this construction going on all these kind of decaying deteriorating buildings and that sort of sets it up sets us up for this movie that is often very grimy and, and sort of dirty um, but very beautiful at the same time and so while we're also like getting his first person perspective he's also narrating to us at the same time so he tells us this story about um, his girlfriend who he met uh, on a job he was hired to shoot a performance at a nightclub um, this nightclub that has this weird sort of like mermaid act where this this woman uh, dressed like a mermaid swimming in a fish tank and he's supposed to film it and that woman the mermaid becomes his girlfriend and he says sometimes when I'm alone with her she'll uh, she'll say to me um, you know like will you ever leave me and he says no and she's like if I were to ever leave you if I were to ever disappear would you search for me like Mardar and he's like who is this guy Mardar and so she tells him this story about about this man who um, was in was in love with a woman he ha was working as a motorcycle courier and um, was working with these like con artists who were trying to steal money from a girl's father um, and it was his job to like take care of this girl to like um, deliver her basically to different places um, and while he's doing this job Mardar this motorcycle courier falls in love with with this girl and then um, things go wrong like in Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo or like in Body Double uh, by Brian De Palma and she she disappears um, and he comes back he's he spends time in prison and he comes back and he sees this other woman the mermaid who coincidentally looks exactly the same as as this woman that he's fallen in love with, um, and he becomes obsessed with her um, because she looks exactly the same but isn't the same. And so then it's very weird because we we've been getting this sort of narration, the videographer. We've been getting his perspective, but he's been very much outside of the narrative. But then as we realize that his girlfriend looks exactly like this other man's love, the narrative starts to get a little complicated, and this. Narrator who has seemed to be have some distance, who seemed to maybe been a little bit objective, even though we're very much in his interior gaze. Um, he becomes part of this complicated story, um, which has a sort of Lynchian quality to it. I think it's, uh, you know, sort of came out a little bit before Mulholland Drive, and it does sort of remind me of that and, and has been compared to that. There have also been a lot of people who've compared it to Wong Kar Wai. Um, there's some similarities to Chungking Express, I think, that you can really easily see. But what really struck me the most is how uh, reminiscent it was of a lot of film noir. I mean, there were several film noir movies that actually used the first person perspective which is a, a real rarity in filmmaking, particularly in the studio era. Um, the movie Dark Passage with Humphrey Bogart has a brief, like the beginning of the movie is, is in the first person. And then the movie Lady in the Lake, the Robert Montgomery movie about Philip Marlowe is entirely in the first person. Um, so just that and the fact that, I mean, film noir was always a lot of times sort of about unreliable narrators, about this interior perspective. You know, you have the gloomy, sad, uh, melancholy detective telling us about his woes and, and speaking directly to us. Um, 
So this is sort of, I think, a, a like a this digital Chinese riff on that almost, um, on, and and it sort of questions our perception, you know, on on it sort of questions narration as well, and you know who whose stories do we trust? Um, it's really a, a, like a narratively fascinating movie. I think I don't think I did the best job breaking down the story because it's pretty complicated. Um, I mean, it's not necessarily hard to follow. There's just a lot of interwoven threads and, and whatnot, but it's also really beautiful too, that you have this mini DV grainy sort of, uh, not pixelated, but, but, you know, sort of low quality, quote unquote look um, but you have a lot of gorgeous colors I mean the fact that one of the characters in the movie plays a mermaid should tip you off to the fact that there's some interesting like water um, photography and, and just good colors and, and some kind of neon shades too so really just an interesting I think combination of influences and of, of stylistic choices um, I was uh, really struck by it I didn't, wasn't really I, assuming you know i wasn't really expecting much going in just because i was walking into class and and this was the movie on the syllabus and i had never heard of it before um but i would really recommend checking it out i believe it's available on dvd i mean i don't really know how widely available it is unfortunately um it also has like one of the best karaoke scenes i've ever seen in a movie where you're in this first person perspective and there is a woman singing karaoke like right in your face uh and it's just it's uh, i just thought it was it's really something special um so if it comes up you know if it's at your library or you come across it i would definitely uh recommend it suju river all right we're gonna take a short break we'll be back talking 1997's gummo after this hey cinematariots this is your co-host lydia creech with an important message during this break in the show Cinematary would like you to know that we do not want your money and we don't want to place ads in the show at this time either. That's not why we do this. We do it because we enjoy each other's company and we want to bring you our pure, unadulterated opinions on the world of cinema. However, there are a few things you can do to help out the show that we would greatly appreciate. First, leave us a review on iTunes, four or five stars only, (laughs) to help us reach more listeners per the algorithm gods. Secondly, send us a tweet at Cinematary, or better yet, send us an email at Zach at Cinematary.com. That's Zach, Z-A-C-H, so we can hear from you guys for a change. I'd especially like to hear if you're a human and not an android who also likes Blade Runner, or maybe you have a suggestion of a movie you would really like to hear our opinions on. Regardless, let us know your thoughts, and we will read them out and respond to them on future episodes of the show. Finally, please share the show with friends and members of your family who you think would enjoy listening to and participating in our film discussions that we bring to you guys every week. So, to recap, review, send us your thoughts through Twitter and email, and please share with your friends and family. We would greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Now back to the show. I was all right.
back with part two of episode 192 of Cinematary. In this part, we will continue our Tennessee, or conclude our Tennessee Auteur series, should I say, uh, with 1997's Gummo, which was written and directed by Nashville's own Harmony Corinne. Uh, the film stars Jacob Reynolds, Nick Sutton, Jacob Sewell, and Chloe Sevigny. Uh, and a nice part where she doesn't have eyebrows for some reason that just kind of that just added to the the grossness of stuff <laughs> they're just dyed blonde I think they're blonde I think she okay. yeah, sure. yeah she does they're they're just 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 which is sure. honestly like it's the so, same thing you know at a certain someone point. put effort into making the eyebrows go it's, away. it's worth noting that she did the costumes for this movie I didn't write that put it down in the notes but uh yeah, she did the costumes for this movie because she was dating Harmony Corinne at this point in time. Uh, but anyway, the film is set in Xenia, Ohio, a small, poor Midwestern American town that had been previously struck by a devastating tornado. The loose narrative follows several main characters who find odd and destructive ways to pass time, interrupted by vignettes depicting other inhabitants of the town. Uh, this was Corinne's directorial debut. The film was shot in Nashville on a budget of $1 million. It was not given a large theatrical release and failed to generate large box office revenues. Uh, the film generated substantial press, though, for its graphic content and stylized, loosely woven narrative. In writing Gummo, Corinne abandoned traditional the traditional three-act plot structure and worked to avoid creating characters of a clear-cut moral dimension. In favor of a collage-like assembly, Corinne focused on forming interesting moments and scenes that, when put in succession, would become its own unique narrative. To justify such a chaotic assembly, Corinne set his film in Xenia, Ohio, which had been hit by an actual tornado in 1974. To help him achieve his vision, Corinne sought out French cinematographer Jean-Vins uh, Escoffer. Uh, his work on Leo Carras, Les Amants du Pont Neuf, uh, made a tremendous impression on Corinne. Uh, and then the cinematographer who liked the script worked on Gummo for a fraction of his usual rate. Uh, during the months of pre-production, Corinne scouted for locations in Nashville, filming unusual and distinctive homes to shoot in. Uh, he often approached people on the street, in bowling alleys, and in fast food restaurants and asked them to play a part in his movie. Uh, he notes, quote, this is where I grew up. These pe- people are interesting to me, and I'd never seen them represented on screen in a, tr- in a true way. Uh, Corinne cast the film almost entirely with local non-actors. Old friends were eager to help Corinne, such as the two skinhead brothers, skateboarders, Mark Gonzalez and little person Bryant Crenshaw. Uh, some exceptions include Corinne's then girlfriend Chloe Sevigny, Linda Mance, and Max Perlick. Uh, on Linda Mance, Corinne stated, I had always admired her. There was this sense about her that I liked. It wasn't even acting. It was like the way I felt about Buster Keaton when I first saw him. There was a kind of poetry about her, a glow. They both burnt off the screen. Uh, Gummo was her first screen appearance in 16 years. She was also in uh, Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven. Uh, Corinne spotted his two main characters while watching cable television. He noticed Jacob Reynolds in a short role in The Road to Wellville. Quote, he was so visual I never got got tired of looking at his face. The character of Solomon played by Reynolds is described in Corinne's script as looking, quote, like no other kid in the world. Uh, the film was shot in some of Nashville's poorest neighborhoods. Producer Kerry Woods comments, quote, We're essentially seeing the kind of poverty that we're used to seeing in third world countries when news crews are covering famines, but seeing that in the heart of America. Uh, one small ho- house 
uh, home housed 15 people and several thousand cockroaches. Bugs literally crawled up and down the walls. Corinne comments, quote, We had to take out stuff to be able to put the camera in the room. At times, the crew rebelled against filming in such condition, conditions, and Corinne was forced to purchase hazmat suits for them to wear. Corinne and Escofer, who thought this was offensive, quote, wore Speedos and flip-flops just to piss them off. Uh, Corinne wanted each scene to be shot with different visual looks and styles. While many scenes are shot in traditional pre-planned 35mm, Corinne handed out 8mm, 16mm, Polaroid, VHS, and Hi8 cameras to his crew, friends and family to achieve uh, an an enhanced collage-like style. Quote, I wanted everything to feel like, feel that it was done for a reason. Like they shot it on video because they couldn't get it on, onto 35 millimeter or they shot it on Polaroids because that was the only camera that was there. I felt like shooting each scene on its own terms and then making sense of it afterwards. And I felt that the styles would blend, that they, that there would be a cohesiveness. Crin worked with editor Chris Telfinson to synthesize the pre-planned footage with the mistakest footage. Uh, he comments, We go from scenes that are completely thought out, almost formal scenes that resonate in this classical film sense, and then we go to other scenes where it's like total mistakes, stuff shot on video where the kids forget there's a camera there and talk about how much they hate the N-word. Um... Uh, Corinne used footage from literally any source he could find that fit his aesthetic. Quote, that cat tape was a tape that a friend of mine had given me of him doing acid with his sister. They were in a garbage garage band uh, and there was a shot of their kitten. That phasing was an in-camera mistake. Uh, he also commented on the pop aesthetic of the film saying, America is all about this recycling, this in- interpretation of pop. I wanted, I want you to see these kids wearing bones, uh, Bone Thugs and Harmony t-shirts and Metallica hats. This almost schizophrenic identification with popular imagery. If you think about it, that's how people relate to each other these days, through these images. On the film, Variety said, Infant Terrible Harmony Corinne makes a bizarre, idiosyncratic directing debut with his uncompromising look at youth alienation in middle America, whose downbeat tone and off-putting imagery should appeal to small minority to a small minority of viewers. The New York Times said, October is early, but not too early to acknowledge Harmony Corinne's gummo as the worst film of the year. No conceivable competition will match the sourness, cynicism, and pretension of Mr. Corinne's debut feature. Turn loose with a camera and the Emperor's New Clothes, the writer of the vastly better kids creates an aimless vision of Midwestern teenage uh, enemy, complete with d- drugs, garbage, dead cats, and neat tricks like turning off Granny's respirator. When it comes to boy wonders exploring the cutting edge of in- independent cinema, the buck stops cold right here. On that note, uh, let's talk a little bit about Gummo. Um, and since it is the the Tennessee Auteur series, why don't we start first with uh, the kind of the setting of this movie? Uh, it's like I said, it's set in Xenia, Ohio, but ma- the majority of it was shot, or the, all of it was shot in Nashville. And um, you know, even though it's this other place, I, I, you know, what what did you make of that? Did you feel like kind of like Corinne was saying that it was capturing this world that we don't necessarily always see. Maybe in 97, I think it's interesting that Corinne decided that Nashville looks like it had been hit by a tornado recently, because that's supposedly what's wrong with Xenia. Uh, 
I, I don't know if it's an entirely fair portrait of Nash of Tennesseans of Na- or Midwesterns slash Southerners, I guess. White people. It, it made me feel white. It made yeah, no, it made me feel real gross. <laughs> well, I guess it, I guess to to you know use a term. I think it's it's kind of this you know the the white trash of the flyover states. I think is the is the best way it's trying to. Uh, that's who it's trying to kind of depict. But is that is that. Do, do we need to do that? Do, do we need that? I'm... I mean, I don't... I think that... Um, one of the things that I like about Corinne is... Uh, and I think this um, applies to a number of his movies. Is that... But particularly this one. There's a, a way in which, you know, he gives us all this sort of provocative loaded imagery in a way that could seem really, or, and, you know, some people take it this way. It's like maybe sort somewhat ironic or, or, um, like he's making fun. And I, and I don't feel like he's doing that. I feel like there's actually sort of a sincerity there. I don't know. I, at the very least, I do. I mean, it is. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is uncomfortable in a lot of ways, and it is definitely gross. And maybe, and certain things are, are I don't know. But I, 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 I do sort of feel like you know, this is a a type of 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 individual for better and for worse that is often not seen on screen. And I feel like there's at least from like a sort of class perspective, like something worthwhile. There. Well, I don't know. Well, the thing for me was not necessarily like Chloe Sevigny's character or Nick Stutton, like the two teenage boys, Solomon and Tum- Tumblr. It was just like, I think the things that he had his friends just filming and improvising and making up, just like sitting around doing nothing, being racist or... I, I, it didn't feel ironic. It just felt like document... I don't know. Well, yeah, I do think it raises interesting questions, too, about, like, the, uh, um, sort of the... about documentary and the boundaries between documentary mm-hmm. and narrative film, at the very least, that are maybe worth worth talking about. I feel like um, this movie, you know, and I feel like we were all on, on one side of feeling about the other movie, but I feel like this is kind of has a little bit of an association uh, of a with, I guess, a previous Tennessee auteur movie, uh, the Jackass series, in that it's kind of depicting depicting these uh, people who are you know, killing time and doing, you know, random stuff to pass the time. Uh, I mean, of course, in the Jackass movies, there's like a, you know, this is like, it was their job, technically. This is like what they did. And this is just more teenagers in in a random Midwestern town, just kind of... People who don't have jobs. Yeah, just kind of... It's like in the summer. around. But I guess what... what, um, And I guess, Lydia, what, what works... I guess what's 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 more effective and what's better about Jackass than the the looseness and the randomness of Gummo. Um, I don't. I think Andrew would disagree with this, but at least with Jackass, I feel like they know that they're professionals. However loosely defined you want to say that, um, 
like just doing like stuntmen doing work and yeah it's dangerous and stupid but like you said it's their job but with just in gummo it's just like these teenagers i don't know it's really sad it just uh yeah but i don't still doesn't mean it's enjoyable and i guess also i think that's the point though like it's oh go ahead i don't know and gummo just has this like air of like like po- like extreme poverty and like dead endedness and jackass I mean they're just jack they're they have money these guys <laughs> maybe it's actually really sadder than jackass <laughs> but that's how they're spending their time but <laughs> yeah I yeah I definitely see um see what you're saying Lydia it is it isn't like I mean particularly uh, with um, I think the movie Trash Humpers. There's a, a, a kinship between Curran's work and um, and the Jackass movies, and also because they both sort of stem from a vaudeville. Um, they both have that creepy or, old makeup too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, but Curran has like I, I don't know why exactly. You know, I've obviously never met the man, but has a weird sort of uh, fascination with with vaudeville and with minstrel minstrelsy minstrelsy whatever the word you know is um in i mean you have like that scene with um the tap dance the mom is tap dancing (laughs) and sort of things like that um where there is this um (laughs) yeah connecting you know some sort of contemporary american pop culture aesthetic um to something older and and uh, and I think that actually the quote Zach that you shared about the quote unquote pop aesthetic about kids mixing Bone Thugs and Harmony shirts and Metallica hats is actually really interesting just thinking about the last sort of 20 years of of pop culture just because in the, especially in the past few years there has been this sort of cultural currency uh, applied to like for lack of a better word, and I mean, I hate this term, but I don't know what other term to use, but sort of like white trash, a white trash aesthetic, where now you have, you know, so many like famous rappers and stuff wearing like, you know, Metallica t-shirts and, um, you know, the, the video for Bound 2 by Kanye is a perfect example of this, where you have all these like wolves and like really sort of, you know, Kanye's on a motorcycle. He's got this tie dye shirt on and he even said in an interview that he ha- wanted that music video to have this like white trash gas station aesthetic. Um, so I think it's like, I, I also, it's just like, I, yeah, I yeah. just want to add, I, no, I just want to add, I, I also kind of attach it to like the, an age where you have Walmarts readily available. It seems like yeah. an aesthetic that you, like you would go and get like the costumes would be purchased all at Walmart. Yeah, totally. And like you would go, you go get those like, you know, the, the Walmart kind of like cheap graphic tees and stuff. And they probably now were. that they're, now that is like, there's this cool uh, kind of associated with, with like some of those shirts and, is there? um, yo, they're, they're I like, can't. they're, they're, they're total. I don't know if it's uh, you know. I mean, it's like a universal thing, but I at least like in like rap culture. But that's like I an mean, ironic thing, then, right? The, it goes back to making. Well, I don't of- even know. Sometimes, like I, I don't even know. But I think I think at least it's like 
interesting thinking about like this movie in relation to that. Like Corinne says, like I want to like show this sort of like melding of like rap and metal and like all of these pop culture things existing together. And then that makes me so uncomfortable because I don't feel like the people picking that up are very sympathetic at all. Not that I don't think these people deserve sympathy on one level. They're like destructive and but uh well i i i i agree like in this case in gummo's case they're not very sympathetic and it does frame it with this you know it's this town that's bit got hit by this tornado and is just kind of almost kind of like a shadow place of of just people living in purgatory but i don't know i don't think it really ever um I never, I never really grasped that aspect of that. I, I felt like it kind of established that at the beginning, and then it just kind of bebopped around to the different, to the different vignettes and the different characters. I never felt like there was always this undercurrent about the about how that that time, you know, that that event really affected the city. I I never felt like it resonated throughout the whole movie. I just felt like it was a plot point that kind of was established at the beginning and then it moved forward. I felt like if if that kind of always was resonating below the surface, it it would have maybe made this movie a little bit more effective, but it kind of it almost used it as a justification for all of the So that's just, just how um, the people and the town is. Yeah, I, yeah. like this is just how I, they are and I'm like okay but like how is, I want I, I feel like there should be some effect you know always kind of rippling because of it I don't know if for me if I think for me that that's there I mean just because in that introduction you hear the boy say like you know basically give this catalog of all these people who have died and all these people who have been injured or in some way uh, hurt by this and so I think that's just sort of more like this framework for like this is the environment this is a you know this place where you know all of the people in this movie have been surrounded by 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 death by by some kind of tragedy and and trauma and that this is just this environment and it you know maybe it's not we don't really like see those effects play out in a way that you can sort of point to and say like oh hey that person is struggling with something or like dealing with you know a lingering trauma or whatever but i think it just sort of sets up this environment of like this is a place of loss um where things are damaged and and broken and then it's just sort of a portrait of that um i don't know and that's how people perceive the midwest right like still to this day yeah yeah (laughs) because like a lot of people say that's how we got in this political situation people dealing with just really empty lives or extreme poverty and like being angry and upset about it uh so i don't i don't know well for me i just for just my own maybe i have more sympathy for these people just because i i uh see much more fault with uh the the the, the rich and with uh, you know people already in power who just got more power so um, but I don't I mean it definitely does there are times where it's like why are you know why why show us 
certain things. Why are we watching this? Like, um, I mean, so many of of the characters in the movie are are handicapped in some way, um, and it just is kind of as like. I think there is definitely like sympathy and like a, a real f- fondness and feeling for for these characters. I don't. I think Corinne. I mean, maybe there are point. Maybe there are points where there's a distance. I don't feel like there's like a mockery, but it is kind of like why show all these yeah. things? I you know? do think Corinne is kind of committed, going way back to showing people who aren't normally shown on screen. I guess especially for the '90s, mm-hmm. like the the two kids look so weird, like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I hate making this comparison, just because it feels like it feels a little uncomfortable. Like, but it, I mean, it almost reminds me of like some what some of, and I, and I mean, I, I'm just with oh the kind God. of vaudeville connection. Like, I'm sure this is a movie that Corinne, yes, m- maybe you know has seen, yes. but like Todd Browning's Freaks, where like that movie is just sort of a documentary of like people who exist on the margins, and it has this loose narrative. Yeah, that's. Solomon um, kid's got like he looks very aerodynamic with his hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, and and so you just have all of these, you know, some people are just sort of odd or strange, and other people are, you know, are, are mentally ill or physically handicapped, and you know, other people like we don't know they're just drunks or whatever, but like they all exist as some sort of like marginal figures. Um, and this is, I guess, just sort of a collection of those, but with even less, with even less of a narrative. I, 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 that, that's honestly, I was literally about to make that comparison because it, it, it is a little like, I don't know, you know, but it, it, at the same time, it, it kind of has that like half fiction, half documentary quality to it where, yeah, mm-hmm. I do agree. It's not like he's looking at some of these characters, um, with judgment or almost like you know making fun of them like he 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 clearly like shares some you know affection you know in terms of the you know their lives and their livelihoods um i think specifically the uh the mentally handicapped woman who had who has the the babies and uh yeah and goes into like and is talking about um you know, how, you know, ha- having the babies and loving her and loving the babies. And, uh, it kind of just follows her, uh, walking around. She interacts with the Chloe Sevigny character for a little bit, but, um, that's a character who you don't, you don't spend a ton of time with, but I feel like you really get this kind of, um, warm, but, uh, this this warm picture but you there's still kind of a twinge of of i don't know if pity's the right word but uh a little bit of a sadness i I even feel that with like the guy playing tennis who talks about uh having add um like there's something similar going on where both of those figures are are not really in the rest of the movie at all and not main characters but it's just like you just get this weird very short moment with someone who talks about something that affects their life and some relationship they have or something that's important to them. And it just very quickly sort of gives them this voice. Uh, but at the same time, there is, at least with that guy playing tennis, you know, it's, there is, I, I, maybe that is one of the moments in which there is sort of a humor 
because Chloe Sevigny and her friends say like, oh, like he's got this new haircut, like he looks so cute. And then he walks over and he has this like awful mullet, mullet. like mullet, mullet beyond mullet. I don't even know what it is. Ugh. And so I feel like that like is maybe a scene of like uh, sort of a little humor, but also that in comparison to like the jokes that could happen in, in a movie like this feels feels somewhat harmless. Um, but but then I think that moment where it's like this slow motion, like him playing tennis and he's talking about um, uh, his ADD, I, I think weirdly on some sort of, I don't know, some sort of emotional register touches me in a way. I don't know. It feels like that moment and a lot of moments have kind of a simplication. I don't like how does he afford his medication? It's something that yeah. he probably had to go a long time without or like wasn't diagnosed. And then all of a sudden he has an answer and it's like, I don't think this kid's going to be able to afford Ritalin for a long time or like yeah. always have it. So yeah, I, I, I think that is sort of an underlying like concern throughout the rest of them. For yeah, all yeah, characters. yeah, for One sure. One of the characters like has breast cancer yeah. or finds out uh, like Tumblr's girlfriend or something. And it, uh, like all she can think about how is that is that's going to affect like her prospect of getting married or like husband it was like no you might die really like, i i just there's i don't know i just thought of this um what do you what do you kind of make whenever you you look at especially corinne's early work like trash humpers and gummo where there's kind of this you have these these non-actors and like we've been talking about it's almost this documentary feel to these lives and and you kind of juxtapose that with his recent stuff especially like spring breakers and the one that's going to be coming out i think later this year beach bum with zach efron and matthew mcconaughey where i could of, not be more excited for that movie but like, also it, worth mentioning that snoop dogg and jimmy buffett are in it as well so <laughs> i mean do you see do you see what, what do you make of like the 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 juxtaposition of having these non-actors who are actually kind of somewhat living this type of lifestyle and then compared to his his recent work which is like people like James Franco and Matthew McConaughey going to that level you know almost I guess for lack of a better term trashing themselves a little bit to 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 like reach that 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 way of living well it's kind of like this I I don't know about beach bum but like spring breakers it's i think it's still very much in line or maybe a little bit of evolution of just like all these rich economically privileged people come to this town and wreck it for three weeks out of the year and then corinne like after everyone leaves like he's very concerned with showing like here's where the residents live and like it's still this really uncomfortable level of like destructive behavior going on behind scenes and i also think corinne's still interested in bodies maybe not so much unusual ones but unusual in that they're so perfect <laughs> at least with spring breakers and like zach efron I, <laughs> I also think there's a i mean there are still in spring breakers like non-actors like there's a I mean but they don't they're not playing really major characters necessarily I mean maybe you could I wouldn't say Gucci Mane is like a non-professional actor who's that rapper uh, that uh, Franco was supposed to be Gucci, Gucci Mane, Mane. Yeah, oh oh riffraff um, but you also have like 
he's not in it, but there is another rapper who is like from St. Petersburg named Dangerous, who's like plays James Franco's sort of sidekick and is just kind of hanging around. Yeah. And, and I'm sure a lot of other people just in the movie are probably just were, were street cast or um, just sort of recruited. But there is to me, it seems to be a similarity in like the process of the movie and what it comes from, where um, in listening to interviews with Corinne and, and reading about Spring Breaker specifically, he says that like in developing and writing that movie, basically all he did was like he collected all of these images and videos of like guys in Florida, like fighting in gas station parking lots and stuff like that. And then just sort of took all of these or like, you know, crazy spring break parties and uh, girls um, gone wild. You know, like, yeah, and like beer bong shaped like dicks and stuff like that, which you see all that stuff in that movie. And then he said he just sort of, you know, built a narrative around of all of these kind of provocative images, which I think Gummo, you could see very much in the same way. I mean, I don't know if he did literally the same thing of like collecting images, but it seems like in how he sort of, you know, went around to different houses and found different people. He was sort of building this story out of just things that looked interesting to him. And because of that, I do feel like there's a sort of flexibility and a fluidity to his movies and how you can read them to where you could read Gummo as being like very sincere and and sympathetic to these people. And I think you could also, you know, I'm sure there are people who read it as like incredibly offensive and and making a mockery of this world and spring breakers. There's a similar tension where I know some people, you know, myself, I think it's a very smart movie, but I, you know, I've heard other people who, you know, say, Oh, it's like really racist. It's, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's sexist. It's offensive. It's all of these things. So I do think he's sort of, I mean, it's, I, I think that, like, I think in Spring Breakers, there's a part where Selena Gomez is like, oh, this is the most, like, beautiful place in the world. And it is sort of a funny line because you're seeing all this crazy shit happen. But I also think there's a way in which at least, like, Corinne believes that she believes what she's saying. And to me, that's sort of, like, how I view his work of, like, this sort of, this sort of belief. Maybe not... Um, taking everything totally 100% sincerely. I mean, there's humor in his movies and whatnot, but I think like having a sort of faith in people, um, like regardless of who they are, where they come from or what their situation is. Um, I don't know. There's like a weird humanism I, I feel in his movies, regardless of how like gross and over the top they might be. I don't know. Um, any closing thoughts before we, uh, I wanted to, to kind of end this portion with a, a kind of, uh, you know, look back at, at the series at large and what you made of, of these films, you know, these Tennessee auteur films that we picked and how they kind of relate to both the South and the state at large. But anything anything else on Gummo? I think I'm done with Corinne for a while. I mean, he's definitely uh, take a shower after kind of filmmaker. Um, <laughs> and I always wonder, I don't know if you guys, I feel like I've maybe talked to them talk to you about them like off air, but have either of you seen any of his um, interviews on David Letterman in the nineties? <laughs> they're, they're fascinating. I mean, at least one of them, he seems like he's probably on a lot of drugs and in the late nineties, he wasn't like I'm rehab and stuff, surprised. but he, first of all, he looks so young. Like he just looks incredibly young. Um, he shows up in Gunner. Yeah, he is. He is briefly in that one, that one scene where he's trying to make out with the guy. Um, 
but he just tells these weird stories. Like he tells this one story about hanging out with Snoop Dogg and he says like, oh, my friend Snoop Dogg and everybody in the audience laughs at him. And it's this weird moment because he everyone laughs at him and he looks really hurt. And I and it's just this like it's this like, wait, does he know Snoop Dogg? (laughs) Like, does he does he like, is this a real story? Like, you can't really tell. Like, I and that I feel like is also sort of indicative of his movies of like, it's it's both somehow like it's both sincere and ironic at the same time. Um, But I do think like this is a. I don't know, like, I look at this movie and it does sort of, even though I'm, you know, not spending my time in, like, you know, in Tennessee in these kind of neighborhoods, there is a way in which it does sort of remind me of, of Nashville and of, of Tennessee. Um, I feel like we in this series we've gotten a very broad scope of, like, the different Tennessees, even if the movies have not exactly been always directly about Tennessee. There's a lot of different sort of perspectives which I, th- I think is good good on us <laughs> good on tennessee filmmakers yeah no I, I definitely agree with that i think that we've uh <laughs> yeah. gone all over the place <laughs> for good or for bad lydia any 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 closing thoughts i don't know i've actually really enjoyed even the episodes i haven't been on especially the episodes i haven't been on i should say <laughs> uh just the like broad ranging discussions like it all hasn't been like just the south it's been like musicians and different like creative processes and I, I don't know i've been really happy with how it turned out uh well i b- believe this will wrap up this episode of cinematary you can find us at facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary at twitter at handle at cinematary and at letterbox at letterbox.com slash cinematary where we post all the movies that we talked about in this episode but we you know we're finishing up this series but next we have probably one of our favorite series of every year and that is the young critics watch old movies uh we will be beginning next week with a set of pre 1920s shorts that were directed by women uh which is very exciting um we also have the full the full schedule of, of films on cinematary.com. So check those out. Uh, we have a, we're starting to triculate in some guests. Um, right now we have Scott Iman to talk about my darling Clementine and Girish Shambu to talk about Pather Panchali, but, uh, definitely check, keep, you know, keep watching the site. We'll be updating with new guests along the way, but next week we will be kicking off the series with the, uh, the short films by female directors, uh, pre 1920s. So that should be very interesting. Something that I, I don't, I don't necessarily feel like is, is covered as much in terms of film history. Um, but yeah, until then, thank you guys for watch or for listening. Uh, we'll see you next week. All right. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. I wanted to take one final moment to remind you to check out Audible and get a free 30-day free trial just for being a listener of Cinematary. You can start your trial by going to www.audibletrial.com slash cinematary and picking through over 180,000 titles that can be accessed from your iPhone, your Android, your Kindle, or even your MP3 player. Again, that link is www.audibletrial.com slash cinematary. See you next week.